Weekend Warriors, the foreign policy podcast that asks, what else is happening in the world? I'm Essie Cup. You'll remember back when a U.S. drone strike killed Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani. It didn't just reverberate in Iran. It was supposed to have a major impact on the continued atrocities in Syria. It was supposed to be a huge blow, in fact, to Syria's authoritarian leader Bashar al-Assad. With Soleimani gone, Assad kind of lost his biggest international ally in the region and the leader of Iran's proxy militias who are waging a reign of terror in Syria. Well, this week, eight international aid agencies made an urgent call for an immediate ceasefire amidst, well, a humanitarian catastrophe as a Russian-backed Syrian government offensive aimed at the country's last rebel-held stronghold in northwest Syria has forced more than half a million people to flee their homes since December. Eighty percent of them are women and children. Now, this is just, sadly, a blip on the total refugee crisis in Syria. The New York Times reports that since the start of the Syrian civil war back in 2011, nearly seven of every ten residents of Syria have been forced from their homes. It's a total of more than 11 million Syrians who have fled. Just to put a finer point on that, there are more Syrians living outside of Syria than inside of Syria. Now, that mass displacement there is is so normalized that there's a new version of Sesame Street that's going to debut specifically to help the thousands of children who have been born as Syrian refugees, to help them understand and cope with their very unique and awful situation. These are kids who are growing up without school, sometimes without family, without safety and security. Uh, It's a whole generation, really, of Syrians that are having to live life in this awful, awful circumstance. Now, exacerbating the struggles of Syrian civilians, the country's economic troubles According to the Washington Post, popular discontent over the worsening economic conditions has even started to provoke small signs of dissent. Now, that's a rarity inside Syria. This included days-long protests in a government-controlled region. Again, that's real rare. The crisis feels like it might be reaching a, a, a tipping point, militarily, economically, in terms of human rights. But Does that mean that the Assad regime does anything differently? Will any of this lead to an end to the slaughter? Okay, joining me now is Washington Post foreign policy columnist, CNN political analyst, Josh Rogan. Um, Josh, you know, we heard that that after Trump's reckless withdrawal of Kurdish troops from northern Syria, we, we sent more in. We heard that was going to um, change the military realities in Syria. We were told Soleimani's death was supposed to change the military realities in Syria. But here we are, yet another ruthless offensive, uprooting hundreds of thousands of civilians out of Idlib. Um, Is a ceasefire more or less likely now? Uh, Well, I see. uh, What's clear is that the Assad regime, Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah have taken America's clear decision to do nothing in Syria as a sign that they may pursue their policy of mass atrocities, mass aggression, and uh, the offensive in Idlib, the 
expansion of the uh, dungeons and torture chambers and all of that to the next more even gruesome level. I mean, you covered a lot of serious stuff in that opening there, but let me just add a couple of things, right? While all of this is happening, the Assad regime and the Iranians and the Hezbollah and Russia just wiping out towns. It's not as if they're clearing them for terrorists. They're going in, bombing these towns to smithereens, and then killing anyone who is not able to or smart enough to have already fled, okay? And they're taking these towns one by one. As they're doing this, Russia and the United Nations has cut off by vetoing this resolution uh, a couple weeks ago all of the humanitarian aid for all of the parts of Syria that are not yet under Assad's control. So it's a double whammy, right? And, you know, at the same time, now the Turks and the Assad regime are in open warfare. Nine Turkish troops were killed in Idlib. They responded by killing dozens of Syrian troops. That's not going to be the last of that. And in the, where, where we have 600 troops sitting on a bunch of oil fields, not knowing what the heck they're doing there, you know, fighting ISIS, sure, but not understanding how long they might be there, what their rules of engagement are, what they're supposed to do when all the Russians and the Assad regime, the Iranians, you know, pass by them on their way to the war. And it's crazy. It's totally dysfunctional. It gets worse and worse every month. It's worse now than it was last month, and it'll be much worse next month than it is now. Well, last month you wrote that Soleimani's death leaves a huge power vacuum in Syria that presents a rare opportunity for the United States to fix its broken Syria policy. Now, yeah. you and I, I mean, I, I feel like I write seems- something like that every, you know, every few months. Oh, well, this right. creates a new opportunity or this this is an opening. Um, and I've been yeah. doing that for years. I'm sure you have, too. And at every juncture, it feels like those opportunities are are left behind. Yeah, the Trump administration decided not to take my advice and avail themselves <laughs> of the opportunity of Soleimani's killing to do something good in Syria. Uh, you know, I didn't I wasn't hopeful that they would. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that, uh, you know, there 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 are vulnerabilities. There are pressures. There are things we could do now. What you'll see in a debate or, you know, mostly, uh, you know, to the extent that Trump talks about this is he'll say, well, we're not going to go in with 100,000 troops. That's crazy. So there's nothing we can do. It was Obama's fault anyway. And, uh, you know, the, let's just let the Russians and the Turks and the Iranians fight it out, kill each other and Allah will sort it out. That's typically what you hear from the president. That's his attitude. He thinks that Syria is sand and death. And the only reason he could be tricked into leaving a few hundred troops there in the first place is because he thinks that we have the oil. We don't actually have the oil. Don't tell him that. If he finds out, he's going to pull the troops out tomorrow. But nobody, everyone keeps telling him we have the oil. We don't have the oil. The Kurds have the oil. But that's a separate issue. All right. Now, in the end, the reason that people who have studied Syria all for the last nine years and followed it and talked to Syrians who are crying out for our help or attention or support or food or whatever – uh, is because two plus two still equals four. You know, it's still a, a dangerous situation getting worse. It's still, uh, you know, the, the more it goes on, the more extremism, the more refugees, the more suffering, the more it's going to cost someday to rebuild it back. Yeah. And so the, the calculation of we can just leave and not worry about it was never true. And that's right. becoming more and more obvious every day. But we don't have the political will to do anything about it. And in that vacuum, bad actors are 
filling it with death and destruction and horribleness, you know, the, the likes of which we haven't seen in the modern, modern era. Well, it's, uh, you mentioned political will, and I think you're obviously right. And it's, it's frustrating to me because, you know, I've talked to members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, from, you know, Adam Kinzinger on the right to uh, Brendan Boyle on the left. And there is political will uh, amongst not a small group of members of Congress um, to do something about this. In fact, I talked to the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee Chairman Jim Risch's office just this week. Uh, They offered a statement on the latest atrocities, and and Jim Risch said, I will continue to press for Assad and his backers to be held accountable. The U.S. will not forget the plight of the Syrian people. How can anyone say that? With a straight face. And I'm not questioning Jim Risch's sincerity that, you know, he personally doesn't want to forget about the plight of the Syrian people. But how can members of Congress actually say we won't forget when we forget on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you say there's it's the left and the right, it's kind of like the center left and the center right. Right. Because like yeah. the Mike Lees of the world and the Tulsi Gabbas of the world will just tell you that any help for the Syrian people is a thinly masked humanitarian scam to perpetrate a regime change war right. started by John McCain. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's, yeah. so it, that's the prevailing. So it's actually a minority of people in the center left and the center right who are like, oh, no, this is really dangerous. We have to do something about it. Look at what happened the last time we left the region and ISIS took over. That wasn't right. good, right? They can plan attacks there that can hit us. The refugees go to Europe. It destabilizes our allies. You know, these are all things that are important that, you know, we're just letting go. Now, when you talk about Congress, it's interesting because the thing they passed was the Caesar Bill after four years. Right. The, this bill that was named after this guy who brought all of the evidence of the atrocities, smuggled it out of the dungeons and yeah. showed it to the world. Four years later, they passed the bill. But all that does is allow you to sanction the heck out of all of these bad actors. And that leads to what you started off with, which is an economic problem inside Syria. Now, I listened to Jim Jeffrey. He gave a briefing on this yesterday. He's our U.S. envoy for Syria. And basically what he said is that's our only leverage, is these sanctions and not giving them the money to rebuild. Right. And, okay, that means Syria is going to be a worst place to live right? temporarily for the Syrians who are under Assad's control, but it's the only leverage we have to get them to stop actually slaughtering these millions of people in Italy, and that's really a much bigger problem. Well, yeah, and to that point, the UN is estimating about 83% of Syrians currently live below the poverty line, so one has to imagine that will only, um, you know, hurt struggling Syrian civilians there who are struggling already. But I'm wondering uh, your thoughts on what I mentioned earlier, this idea that there's, there is um, some small semblance of resistance bubbling up inside Syria. Now, I'll remind our listeners, I'm sure I don't need to remind you, Josh Rogan, but I'll remind our listeners that this whole thing started over a protest, a protest in a small town called Dara, and um, a, bunch of, a bunch of kids were snatched up by the Syrian regime, and they were tortured, and um, they were tortured for anti-Assad graffiti, and, and they were held in, in prisons, and, and a bunch of parents came out and demanded to know where their kids were. There were protests. That is what sparked this Syrian war that has been going on since 2011. Now, these economic, this, this sort of early economic crisis is starting to 
birth some of those kinds of protests, do you worry that that will be bad for Syria or does that, uh, the people of Syria, or does that give you hope that maybe the people can help turn this tide? You know, listen, the way I look at it is if it's bad for Assad, it's good for the Syrian people, okay? Because he is the one that is torturing, literally torturing them and killing them by the hundreds every day, all day long. And, you know, if, if, if he's facing pressure from his own people because his actions have caused them to have less, then that's good. That's the point of the sanctions, okay? And the, whatever suffering there is in Damascus, it, the, what's going on in Idlib now, to be clear, is, is, is a mass atrocity before our eyes. Yeah. And these are not just four million random people. These are the people who were shoved into Idlib by the Assad regime in Russia because they were fleeing another mass atrocity wherever they came from in the first place. Right. And, you know, these, if, if we stand by and do nothing, we will witness another slaughter. And Around we will yeah. be... So, you know, sanctions are not a perfect tool. You know, of course, people like me wish we would do actually more diplomatically, but that's not the way the Trump administration has decided to play it, okay? They, they don't want to get involved. When you don't have a dog in the fight, then you can't win the fight. And what Russia and Iran are doing is they're trying to normalize the situation. They're trying to say that Assad's winning. We should all just go back to support working through Assad. That's the way it's going to be. So why don't we just get to the end of this thing and admit that Assad has won the war? The problem with that is that the Syrian people will not agree to that, okay? They won't agree to go back to being oppressed, especially given what's happened over the last nine years. As long as Assad is there, there'll be a magnet for extremism, there will be insurrection, there'll be war, and without a political solution, nothing good will happen, and without America actually doing something, there won't be a political solution. Yeah, I just want, I, I just want people to visualize half a million people fleeing a single region just since December. It, it, it is just now February. I mean, that is uh, almost impossible to imagine. And those are the people who have thus far survived uh, the, the slaughter and onslaught in Idlib. Uh, Josh Rogan, thank you so much, as always, for joining me on Weekend Warriors. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. I'm SD Cup. Tune in to Weekend Warriors next time.